0: Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3,
1: 770 CHQR. Very good afternoon. Happy Tuesday. Welcome aboard. Rob Breckenridge with you. Afternoons on 770 CHQR 403 974 is the number 974-TALK. A lot to get to on the program today. Where I want to begin this afternoon, though, is uh, news out of the United States uh, concerning foreign workers. And and this is going to be, I I get that there's maybe some dilemma for governments at some level uh, as we move forward and try to address, A, the uh, massive unemployment we're facing in the moment, and and B, uncertainty about international borders, international travel, workers going back and forth, etc. But I think this is also something that's been in keeping uh, with the approach of the Trump administration even before uh, this whole pandemic. Uh, but the news uh, today, U.S. President Donald Trump has suspended the entry into the United States of certain foreign workers, a move the White House claims will help the economy, but which business groups strongly oppose. Trump has issued a presidential proclamation that temporarily blocks foreign workers entering on H-1B visas, which are for skilled employees, and L visas for managers and specialized workers being transferred within a company. Trump has also blocked those entering on H-2B seasonal worker visas, which are used by landscapers and other industries. So, Theoretically, that potentially opens up some of those jobs, uh, but it's going to be really tough, I think, for a lot of companies to, to scramble to find people to fill those jobs. Now, this is something that is probably going to affect a lot of Canadians, but at the same time, too, is there maybe an opportunity for Canada or other countries, especially when it comes to skilled workers? I mean, already Canada's immigration uh, certainly uh, is, is targeted at attracting skilled workers, and, and so maybe there is some opportunity here for Canada. Well, joining us to talk more about some of these changes, uh, what they might represent for Canada. Very pleased to welcome in the program here this afternoon, Robert Faulkner, a research associate at the University of Calgary School of Public Policy, focusing on immigration and refugee policy. Robert, great to have you back with us here. Welcome to the program.
2: Happy to be here, Rob.
1: Uh, First of all, you know, I mean, should we be surprised by this move at all, do you think?
2: No, uh, this is actually one um, people who've been who research immigration refugee policy have been sort of looking at this for the past month and expecting it. Rumors have been flying around since uh, I've seen since about late May uh, uh, that this was going to come down the line. And as you kind of mentioned in your introduction, that follow, definitely follows the trend in the Trump administration to, to limit all forms of immigration. You know, Originally, the promise was that it would be uh, low-skilled immigration and maybe um, asylum seekers, but this is uh, in line with what they've indicated throughout most of his administration.
1: Right. Uh, is it overly simplistic then? Because there there probably be some in Canada that maybe see it the same way that, you know, we should prioritize jobs for Canadians. That's certainly the White House line here. We're prioritizing jobs for Americans. But what, what gets left out of the equation when you frame it that way?
2: It's a good question, and, and I, I think especially right now, as you mentioned in your introduction with COVID-19, is questions of well, should we reserve jobs for unemployed Canadians? Um, especially, you know, the other one you brought up was uh, the risk of spreading the virus along um, across international borders. And, and so I think while we're still in the midst of the pandemic, uh, I think that, that question of the spread of the virus is probably the more um, important and immediate one. Uh, but when we talk about unemployment as well, especially short-term unemployment, um, the example I always use with this is actually when women began to enter the, the workforce in the 70s eight uh, and 80s in, in big numbers. Um, there's this thing that you call the lump of labor fallacy, which is the idea that there's a fixed number of jobs in the economy. And this is kind of the view that the Trump administration takes, is that if we don't allow foreign workers in, uh, we will open up all these job spots for Americans. Um, but when we saw women enter the workforce in the 70s and 80s, what we ended up seeing is actually a huge increase in demand as well, um, more purchasing power on women, and actually job creation in the economy. Likewise here, um, when, we, when we look at foreign workers, especially the H-1B visas and the uh, L-1 visas, these are often like the Elon Musk's of the world. Actually, he was an, a, a Canadian H-1B uh, visa uh, who entered the United States from Canada. Um, and they often are what's called complements, meaning they don't substitute for workers, but they sort of act as sort of a synergy of, uh, for innovation in this area. Um, and so uh, I, I certainly think the, the short-term implications for, um, around unemployment are, are, are valid concerns. I, I'm not sure they necessarily bear out, especially in the long term.
1: In terms of how this impacts Canadians, now, there, there are a lot of, uh, for example, nurses in Windsor that, that work on the other side of the border in, in healthcare in Detroit and elsewhere in Michigan. My understanding is that healthcare workers are, are mostly spared from this, although not entirely. How, how does this impact Canadians, as best you can tell?
3: So,
2: you're totally right in that, uh, they have, the Trump administration has exempted certain, uh, workers from this ban. Uh, so you use the example of medical workers. The other one they've exempted is, uh, workers in agriculture. Um, so let's say Mexican farm laborers who are coming up to the United States to help out with the, the oncoming, the onset of the, the full agricultural season. Um, the, but about, specific to these categories, roughly about 400 to about 500 Canadians per year go down to the United States to work under these visas. Um, and by the way, I'll lot here, the other thing this ban does is that it actually extends the pre-existing ban on green cards that the Trump administration implemented early on in the pandemic. So that would affect about another 600 or so Canadians who are not marrying American spouses uh, but would otherwise be trying to get a green card in the United States. So total about... Somewhere in the ballpark of about 900 to about 1,200 Canadians going down in the States. So I'll, I'll reiterate here that we're not talking um, low-skilled Canadians. These are Canadians who maybe, let's say they work for a multinational company that operates both in Canada and the United States. Let's say here in Alberta, the oil and gas industry. Um, it, this new ban would prevent a mid- or high-level manager from Alberta from going down for three or four months in the United States. And running a training course down there in the in, in the US, let's say in Colorado, for example, or Texas. Um, that that's the implication there is that it's not low skilled workers that are going to be affected by this. It's high skilled immigration. I think, however, the bigger question is how is this going to affect Canada? Um, what are we going to, likely to see?
1: Right, and, and what what do you think that impacts going to be?
2: I think from what we've seen uh, with the previous travel bans, the NSF's issued that I think we're going to see an uptick in interest in in moving to Canada. Uh, I'm working on a paper right now that that looks at the original travel ban. And uh, what I I wanted to gauge from it was interest in moving to Canada. So I want to see how many people applied to come here um, as a result of the travel ban. Whether or not they get in is another question. Um, But what we found is that uh, after the travel ban came in, uh, there was about 410,000 uh, non-humanitarian applications to come to Canada; these are for like economic reasons or for family reasons. And about half of those were related to the travel ban. Now, those are just from about nine countries. Uh, this this ban extends globally, so I, I think well, Canada regularly receives about um, uh, several million applications to to visit, work, or study in Canada every year. Um, Again, we don't have to approve all of those, but I I suspect we're going to see a significant increase in in interest in moving to Canada.
1: Right. So there are potential opportunities here. I mean, it was interesting to read. There's a lot of pushback in in Silicon Valley to this and and a lot of concern about the impact this is going to have on on tech companies. Right. And and that's what everyone's chasing. We all want to be the next tech hub. We want to figure out how do we how do we lure tech companies, whether it be to Canada in general or, or Alberta or Calgary more specifically. So is this the kind of thing that maybe Canada could take advantage of?
0: Absolutely.
2: Um, the other one, too, along with, with Silicon Valley, is that this will also affect university professors. Um, and and lest we think that because, you know, just teaching, and I'm not, to all the, the English literature majors, I'm not slamming you here, but this is not just, you know, humanities we're talking about, um, but this is also for example, we have uh, professors at Harvard and MIT who are working on biomedical technology and engineering. Actually, the U.S.'s sort of great secret for, for the past century has been its ability to attract foreign talent to its universities. Albert Einstein is a, is a classic example. Um, the, the Manhattan Project, etc. These were all its industrial uh, planning, its industrial technological advantages have all been greatly helped by the ability of labor. And actually, I read a, good, a, a great uh, piece by, by Noah Smith recently. He points out that as um, sort of this new pseudo-cold war with China heats up, Uh, If we really want to compete with China, um, which has a far greater population than both Canada and the United States, uh, that's going to rely a lot on our industrial and technological innovations, which, again, that's going to be both Silicon um, Valley-type work as well as our universities. And as far as Canada goes, I think we should position ourselves in a way that's ready to receive uh, more applications from these. And I think we have... The foundation there, uh, there's some tweaks we're going to have to make, but one thing I'm looking at, there's this one visa program called the Global Talent Stream, which can approve a foreign worker in about 10 days. Um, and if we were to somehow be able to scale that out to capture some of this talent from the U.S., again, the high-skilled engineers, workers, university professors, et cetera, I think there's there's great potential for Canada to, to basically get a free lunch at uh, America's expense.
1: Well, and I mean, theoretically, this is, is supposed to be temporary, what the U.S. is doing. I mean, if, if it's four more years of this president, it's probably the sort of thing that likely is, is going to hang around in some form. Maybe there will be a dramatic policy change after the November election and, and come January. So I, I guess it's not it's not clear, is it, how long this this policy specifically or, or more generally this approach is going to last?
2: Yeah, it's not clear to me either. And I think two things that kind of come up with regards to that. One is, is again, going back to this, this paper I'm working on with with the original U.S. travel ban, is what I saw was a bit of a scarring effect. So in a couple of cases, the U.S. actually lifted the travel ban on countries after it originally imposed them, imposed it upon them. Uh, but even after it was lifted, there was still a high number of applications coming to Canada, meaning that maybe people are a little bit more wary about, well, we don't know if this is going to come back in or not. At some point, is indicative of a long-term trend. So, even if let's say we have a change in presidents come November, uh, it might not be a guarantee that the U.S. is able to recapture some of that. I'm sure it will for a lot of it, but perhaps not all of it. The other one, too, I'll point out here is that the Democratic Party, um, despite some of the rhetoric from from the Trump campaign, hasn't always been the party necessarily of open borders. Uh, they, you know. Uh, one very influential figure in the Democratic Party in the United States has actually been quite cautious about foreign workers uh, is Bernie Sanders, for example. Um, he kind of actually takes a more Trumpian line of uh, protecting American workers, thinking right. that immigrants are taking the jobs there. And, and, well, I don't think Biden is necessarily at the same stripe. I don't think, we, especially in a period after a pandemic, we might not see even a Democratic president being willing to remove some of these restrictions.
1: And some important points. We'll leave it there. Robert, appreciate the insight. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Thank you, Rob. Have a good day. Much appreciated. Take care. That's uh, Robert Faulkner at the uh, School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary Research uh, Associate, focusing on areas of immigration and refugee policies. So the impact and these changes in the U.S. are certainly going to impact Canada. And as he said, with specific interest to the oil and gas industry, even, you know, companies that operate in, in both countries. The idea of, a, you know, a mid-manager going down for a few months to work, you know, in, in Houston or whatever, well, that's going to be a lot tougher now. And there are Canadians that do apply for these, these visas each year. And so they're, they're going to be blocked from that. So it's definitely going to have that impact. But he said on the other side, and the way tech companies in, in the U.S. are kind of crying foul here with regard to, to skilled workers, there's some opportunity there for Canada or other countries to take advantage of that. I suppose there's probably some overlap between the protests that we've been seeing more recently and the protests we were seeing many months ago. It seems like uh, forever ago, Uh, protests that were uh, blocking uh, rail crossings in various parts of the country uh, in in order to raise issues around the plight of indigenous Canadians, but also more specifically the whole situation in B.C. with the coastal gasoline pipeline and and the Wet'suwet'en First Nation. Uh, At the time, and there was a lot of concern, obviously, about some of these rail protests, and so the Alberta government said, we're going to do something about it. Hence Bill 1, the Critical Infrastructure Defense Act. So this was tabled way back in February, uh, but was only just passed earlier this month. So it is now the law. And it contains uh, a number of new uh, prohibitions, I guess, as it pertains to protests that would involve or affect so-called critical or essential infrastructure. Railways being an example, but uh, certainly not restricted to railways. Uh, Section 1, for example, defines essential infrastructure as everything from pipelines to processing plants to highways. Uh, Any thoroughfare, street, road, trail, avenue, parkway, driveway, uh, lane, alley, bridge, causeway, trestleway. So it, it is pretty broadly described here what we're talking about when it comes to essential infrastructure. And what was already illegal, you know, blocking a rail crossing is, I guess, now still or additionally an offense under this legislation. So some of it might be redundant. But it does does go pretty far. It is pretty far-reaching, and there's been a number of criticisms uh, levied against the government that maybe they're going too far here, uh, in in restricting pro- uh, protest. Right? We do have uh, charter rights with regard to freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, etc. Well, the Alberta Union of Provincial Employees has announced that they're taking the government to court over Bill 1, filing a constitutional challenge. So joining us to talk more about some of their concerns is Guy Smith, president of the AUPE. Guy, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. Um, let me ask you, first of all, just from from your perspective as a union, because, you know, you're yeah. making the argument here that... that that this kind of reaches into areas of of collective bargaining and potentially mm-hmm. affects uh, unions in that sense. Uh, how how do you see it that way? Explain that.
3: Well, obviously, um, when it comes to collective bargaining, there's an awful lot of activity that goes uh, in in hand in hand with that to pressure employers to raise issues, to make sure the public is aware, and oftentimes that means information pickets, uh, leafleting, demonstrations, and those have traditionally for. Well, hundreds of years taken place um, on thoroughfares outside of workplaces, outside of hospitals if they're healthcare workers, or outside of uh, correctional centers if they're correctional offices. So those th- those take place outside of workplaces. And as you correctly mentioned in your intro, um, the the definition of essential infrastructure could be almost anything cabinet wants it to be. And the restriction on where you can peacefully protest is pretty much everywhere where you set your feet, whether it's a street, an avenue, a parkway, lane, alley. So in what we see this is as a real chilling effect on um workers and citizens' rights, uh, as protected by the Charter of Rights, uh, to peacefully uh, protest and raise issues. That is the cornerstone of our democracy. It should be the cornerstone of every modern democracy to allow that dissent and, and allow it to express itself.
1: All right. So, yeah, so then the ability, then, you're saying, to protest or rally or even picket is, mm-hmm. is a crucial part of the bargaining process.
3: That's correct, yeah.
1: Right. So if we have what's deemed to be like a, a meat Processing plant. So if, if workers at a, at a meatpacking mm-hmm. plant were protesting or picketing in the parking lot, mm-hmm. that might fall under this legislation.
3: Yes, it certainly might. And certainly, you know, the members that we represent in the, in the public service
1: uh, obviously,
3: any one of their work sites could be uh, considered uh an essential infrastructure um and, and again you have to realize that a lot of the changes to this or additions to this legislation will come through regulation which would mean cabinet uh making those decisions behind closed doors so if they see uh, aup members uh protesting or picketing in front of a certain building they can with a stroke of a pen deem that to be a violation of the law um, and obviously, we would say that's uh, also a violation of those uh, individuals' charter rights. So it, it reaches very deep uh, into uh, what we we believe is a legitimate part of democratic society. And again, and we've seen it before, again, this government is using the power of the state uh, to enforce its will and to uh, clamp down on any dissenting voices. <laughs>
1: Right. So when the government describes this as an attempt to stop illegal protests, right, mm. that we're, we're okay with legal protests, we're just trying to stop illegal protests, um, that, that that's kind of a disingenuous argument you would see it as.
3: Right. So, you know, I, I, I know that the main reference, and you, you spoke to this as well, is, is in regards to the, the, def, the defender of the land protests and blockades that we saw earlier this year. Um, I can't see AUPE being involved directly Uh, In those kind of activities, we are talking more about the traditional ways in which we've demonstrated, um, you know, on on streets, in front of buildings, even at the legislative building. And uh, the fact that that it could be made illegal very quickly through the uh, enforcement of this new legislation, it is it will be deemed illegal. And there uh, there's automatic arrest. uh, There's massive fines and jail time included for, for individuals who who, who uh, seem to have breached this this egregious piece of legislation.
1: Yeah, you know, and I agree. I mean, I, I think it is overly vague, um, because I'm, I'm sure there would be some who say, well, if you can't protest at that spot, just go protest somewhere else. Uh, but it is kind of unclear and arbitrary as to what's okay and what isn't. I think that that's part of the problem here. But, I mean, what would you say to that argument, though, that... You know, we don't want you picketing outside of this correctional facilities, so just go go have a, a rally or a picket, you know, down the street or across the street or something.
3: Well I I would say that the workers can decide where best they're going to have influence uh, in order to change a decision or influence a decision, whether it comes to uh, something to do with their collective bargaining process or whether it's uh, protesting some other action that the government or or an employer has taken. Those workers get to decide uh, where they're going to be most effective. Uh, That's not up for anyone else to decide. And that is part of, the, as you said, the freedom of expression, the freedom of association, and and the freedom to uh, peaceful assembly. Uh, You know, those involved in that need to determine where it's best to do that. They cannot be dictated to by a government that decides uh, that uh, perhaps uh, the pressure is actually working and they want to remove that pressure by making it illegal.
1: I guess until this bill was passed, we didn't know what the final version would look like, and maybe there was still the opportunity mm-hmm. along the way to, to make some changes to some of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so from your perspective, was, was part of your approach then in waiting to see what the final version looked like, and is that why this, this challenge has been launched now?
3: Well, it could only be launched once it reached Royal Ascent, which happened last Thursday. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's only a matter of a few days ago, um, and obviously we, we had to see that it was passed into law before we could take any action. And we have filed with the courts today, and that's going to be a very long process, as we all know, when we challenge things through the courts. But what we anticipate, though, is our members, as you well know, Rob, were were very much engaged in, in some collective actions prior to the pandemic. There's been a lot of information pickets, there's been a lot of rallies, and that's their right as workers. And we will be at a place where they will need to do that again. Uh, the concern now is, are they going to be automatically turned into criminals once that happens? I mean, these are the folks on the front lines of this pandemic, whether it's in government services or in healthcare, education and the municipalities, they are helping keep Alberta safe and through this crisis right now. They are heroes. And yet Jason Kenney and the UCP, instead of supporting them and, and making sure they've got the resources they need, uh, are using this crisis as cover to to put this egregious piece of legislation through to turn those heroes into criminals later on when those heroes actually want to stand up for their own rights.
1: Right, as Jay, the uh, statement of claim has been filed this morning, and uh, obviously still a ways to go on this. Much yep. more at AUPE.org. dot org. Guy, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Take care. Thank you. All right, you as well. Uh, that is Guy Smith, president of the Alberta Union of Provincial Employees, the AUPE. So, yes, this obviously had to wait until the bill was passed to receive royal assent. Uh, They're now taking it to court. Uh, And I got to say, I mean, I think there's some legitimate concerns around this bill. I I do think it's a little too vague. I think it goes a little too far. I think people were probably more or less on board with the idea of saying, look, we can't have people uh, blocking railways, tying up commerce across the country. Again, I mean, all of that seems like a million years ago now. But yeah, I mean, look, those were legitimate concerns. Uh, that, you know, it was certainly harming the economy by having rail shipments that couldn't get across the country, couldn't get where they needed to go. But I think part of the frustration was, well, it's, it's already illegal to do that. And, and why aren't authorities doing something about it? Right? The, the concern was maybe we should make that illegal. That wasn't the, the question. So to me, I, it always seemed like Bill 1 was a little bit of political theater that people were concerned about those blockades and the premier said, we're going to do something about it. Which I guess, you know, people would hear that and appreciate it. But if we're we're making something that's already illegal, a little bit more illegal, I I don't know that we're accomplishing much. And and some of this does go, I, I think, as I say, a little too far in how we define what is essential infrastructure. Is any street... Or bridge or causeway or driveway or alley, I mean, th- we would really call anything along those lines essential infrastructure that, that seems like a bit of a stretch here. And look, you can argue well a bridge, you know a bridge is potentially important, and maybe depending on the situation, you know bridge is the only way in or out of a certain community or part of uh, a community. Right, so there's been a real conversation happening recently about mask wearing and how effective it can be in, in keeping COVID-19 at bay, keeping this virus in check, uh, and to what extent we should encourage it or even potentially mandate it. Now, it's, it's become a little politicized, I think, to some extent, unfortunately. And I mean, there are those who, yeah, would, would prefer not to have to wear one. It, it can be uh, annoying or an inconvenience. Uh, but how effective is it? You know, we're probably still, at, at the very least, several months away from, from a vaccine. So uh, we are going to have to live with this virus for the time being. And if if masks can be effective in, in helping keep transmission rates low, keep the virus in check, it's it's worth understanding that. So we're getting a growing body of evidence that's giving us some indication that, look, this isn't a panacea, um, but it can be an effective tool. And and at the moment, we... we are kind of in short supply, I guess, uh, of effective tools beyond testing and tracing. This is another one. So, what does the evidence tell us? And there's an interesting new study of this week, uh, sort of taking a, a big picture look uh, at the uh, situation so far with COVID 19 and what we're seeing in terms of deaths around the world. And is there any connection there? And this study finds that, in fact, the countries that adopted masks early in the outbreak had uh, much lower mortality. So that's that's important in, in encouraging information. Joining us to talk more about this study, one of the authors uh, joining us on the line here this afternoon, Christopher uh, Leffler is uh, an associate professor in the Department of Ophthalmology at uh, Virginia Commonwealth University. Christopher, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's interesting because, as you say, I mean, we, in, in this report, when you, we look at countries, there's all kinds of factors that are going to come into play in terms of who was hard-hit and who wasn't. But, but why, why did mask-wearing seem to stand out to you?
0: Well, it was the factor that had the biggest impact, and we controlled for all sorts of other differences between the countries, their gross domestic product, prevalence of obesity, age of the population, prevalence of smoking, uh, temperature. So you name it, we, we try to control for other factors. And mask wearing was associated with the biggest difference in per capita coronavirus mortality. So the countries that used the masks early, that is right when their outbreak started, did way, way, way better than the countries that delayed using masks.
1: Right. So we can we can see that delay then in, in the data as well. So some countries were, were- Quicker to adopt the practice, others took a little bit longer, and then I guess you can see a difference even there.
0: Exactly. So the the countries that that used the mask within fourteen days, or rather twenty one days of their outbreak started starting, did the best. Um, but even up to thirty one days, uh, they they still did better than the countries that waited till uh, more than fifty days. Uh, and the differences are striking. So, for instance, the countries that used a mask within 21 days of the outbreak starting, had a a mortality of 1.6 per million population. And if you look at the countries that did not wear masks, after you go to 50 days, they're up at 300 per million.
1: Right. And obviously, I mean, you know, that that those countries include places like Taiwan and, and South Korea, Hong Kong, and in jurisdictions where maybe it could be argued that there was already a culture of of mask wearing as a way of preventing other diseases and, and just encouraging good hygiene. Um, but but we do have other examples outside of some of these Asian countries where where countries did adopt mask wearing where maybe it was was less um, you know common before this pandemic.
0: Right. So. Definitely the East Asian countries had more of a culture, but there were some other countries and areas around the world. In Europe, the first to do it uh, was Slovakia. Uh, they mandated masks on public transport in shops uh, within 21 days of the beginning of their outbreak. The next in Europe was Czechia. And those two countries have done better than most of the rest of Europe. Uh, and then you had some countries in Africa as well as countries in Latin America and the Caribbean that introduced masks early as well.
1: Yeah, Venezuela has been an interesting example because I think there was a lot of concern about how vulnerable Venezuela might be, and we're seeing how hard hit Brazil is at the moment. Venezuela is interesting because that's that's another example, right? Where they it is an example,
0: and they introduced masks. Actually, the president uh, demonstrated masks on live television the very first day that they confirmed a case. And Venezuela has done better than their neighbors, both uh, Brazil and they. They've also done better than Ecuador in terms of uh, per capita coronavirus mortality.
1: So I think this this adds to, you know, other other research that's been done in, in trying to understand the, the value of masks. What do you think this this suggests as is, you know, countries like Canada and the US kind of weigh our options in terms of what our strategy is going to be forward and, and how we try to keep this virus in check?
0: I think if if we all wear masks whenever we're indoors around other people uh and um there's a a lesser risk when you're outdoors if it's just fleeting contact if you're walking in a park and you're not near other people then there's a low risk there but if it's a say a very large crowd outdoors uh, then there could be some risk but particularly indoors and on public transport uh there if if everybody can wear a mask it can help us get back to doing all the things we want to do opening up our schools reopening businesses and doing all the things that we used to do i think masks can help us sort of return to a normal life
1: well and i think it's important to look at it that way because you know as i alluded to earlier we our options are kind of limited at the moment and i don't think people want to go back to having to close down uh, businesses and in public buildings that you know if, if if lockdown's off the table we don't have a lot of other good options do we
0: right from what i can see a lot of the countries that did introduce masks early really have been able to keep their economies moving and um have not had the same kind of uh, outbreaks or clusters of, out- of of infection. So actually, the countries that use masks have been able to have a more normal life, basically.
1: Well, some important new evidence. Uh, hopefully, we'll, we'll shape the conversation going forward. Uh, Professor Leffler, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Bye-bye. All right. All the best. Uh, that's uh, Christopher Leffler at uh, Virginia Commonwealth University, one of the authors uh, of this study. Uh, so this isn't a, a technical study of the mechanics of mask wearing, but it's it's looking at that, that broader correlation. When countries adopted widespread mask wearing and what the influence was. And it was a pretty big, uh, the, the, you know, the, the difference was pretty big. It's a pretty powerful piece of, of information. As they say, it wasn't just by a few percent. It was up to 100 times less mortality. Countries that introduced masks from the very beginning have had hardly any deaths. Now, and, and again, other factors might explain some of that, too, right? And if you say, well, look, Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, Hong Kong, places like this, it was more common to see mask wearing originally. And and then with that, you know, comes a sense of not just civic duty, right, trying to protect one another, good hygiene, all, all the kinds of attitudes that go into that can certainly help deal with with a situation like this. But when you look at other countries, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Venezuela, countries where mask wearing really wasn't typical or cultural or ingrained in any way, but was widely adopted and encouraged, you see a big difference there. So, I mean, it's, look, people have strong opinions on mask wearing, I get it. Um, But in terms of the options we have, it's certainly preferable to to lockdown. Right? I mean, in, when you look at the idea of saying you can't go here and you can't go there, or the notion that, you know, we're going to force everybody to have tracing apps on their phone, those are certainly more intrusive. The idea of put on a mask, that's pretty much the extent of it. It's not restricting where you can go or what you can do, it's just about putting it on. But I think, again, even the notion that people would be told to put it on, its it does. Make makes some people bristle. I get it. So there's a different kind of debate about should it be mandatory, mandatory in certain situations, just encouraged, facilitated. But at least it's good to know that, okay, that's a tool. That's a tool we have. That if things get bad, it doesn't automatically have to mean lockdown. Maybe we try this instead. Right? And, I mean, certainly that's been the experience. South Korea has been a great example. And they, they emphasized this kind of an approach, mask wearing, testing and tracing, and, and avoided really any kind of serious lockdown. We talk a lot about Sweden and the Swedish experience. They've seen a lot of deaths in Sweden. But what if Sweden had done everything the same, but just added some masks to the equation?